take our Bibles, turn over to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. We're still in our Bible Truth series, and we've been dealing with dispensations. A little bit ago, as I heard that noise, I thought somebody's stomach was growling. <laughs> Three of you just raised your hands and admitted to it. But anyway, <clears throat> 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. Man, it's just grumbling out there a little bit. Sounds like it's a little angry, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But we're glad we're inside here, and this building's been around a long time. We used to pray that a plane would crash into it without any passengers, uh, you know, just to make sure everybody was safe, you know, that somebody had bailed out or something, and then a plane just crashed right in, burned the whole thing down, and we got over $6 million in insurance money. But uh, that never happened. Instead, we just kept having to pinch pennies and make it happen with the Lord's help, and uh, God knew what he was doing, but uh, if he wants to wreck it, he can. I'd be okay with that. And then we'd do one on all one level, you know, and then make a nice little, you know, second level where it's easier to get up to, maybe even put an elevator in. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, it'd be expensive, but it'd be nice. But we wouldn't be paying, right? It'd be the insurance, right? Then again, we are paying, aren't we? Because it seems like every time the insurance puts out money, we end up paying more for insurance. <clears throat> so one way or the other, I guess you pay in the long run, but oh well, it's funny how the Lord works. So years ago, we had a big storm come through at the other property, and there was over a hundred and some thousand dollars we were awarded uh, through our insurance to put on new roofs over every single property we owned. And so we put on all brand new roofs on our church buildings and uh, the properties we owned, and boy, I'll tell you what, that was a, an act of God, they said, and they covered it all, and that was wonderful. That's great. There's nothing like insurance coming through when you need it in a pinch like that. And uh, that was a blessing. But uh, the Lord works in interesting ways, doesn't he? But anyway. So anyway, we stopped praying about airplanes crashing and all of that stuff. But either way, we thank the Lord for it. If he wanted to flood this place, which would be very difficult up on the hill like this, we could get all brand new carpet. <clears throat> but... Uh, that probably won't happen either. Okay, so anyway, some of you don't know if I'm being serious or just joking around right now. So anyway, let's go ahead and just read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Oh, man, I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm going to get it in hot water myself. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> I should have been turning there when I was rambling on. Now, the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 15, it says... Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we've been addressing this issue of rightly dividing and working diligently to try to uh, just harmonize the scriptures by rightly dividing them. Because as we've noted in the past and as we've mentioned, I'm sure, throughout uh, many messages, is that we've got to make sure that we're not misappropriating the word of God. We're not placing it where it doesn't belong. We're not applying it where it doesn't fit. And so we need to make sure we rightly divide it. And, and so we've been addressing that and dealing with it. And as a result of that, we've been talking about dispensations. And 
basically, we learned quite a bit about them along the way. We talked about the dispensation of innocence, and we talked about how God worked face-to-face with his creation, Adam, and uh, even Eve in the garden. We know that, I'm sure, in the cool of the day, the Bible makes it clear that Adam walked with him, but I got a feeling that Eve was walking with him, too, because they were both named Adam, right? Okay, so anyway, moving on, you've got to read that. But anyhow, uh, <clears throat> so I've got to believe that the two of them were having fellowship and communion with God, and what a blessing it was. You ever know, I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to create a real problem if I start talking about that again. But anyway, so Adam and Eve, you know, it's interesting before the fall and how things were going there and how the two of them got along so awfully well. And uh, that was a wonderful thing. And boy, that's the thing that a marriages can have. You know, when we get some things right with God, we can kind of get back to that uh, pre-fall type of relationship, which is a blessing. Amen. And so anyway, um, <clears throat> we see there after the fall, Adam and Eve, of course, were no longer innocent. You know, they uh, were tested and they failed. And now they are, God's going to depend on their consciences. Okay, I put a conscience in you. Now I'm going to trust your conscience. Okay, give you an opportunity to function that way. Well, that lasted for about 1,600 years until God could tolerate the sin no more. And of course, we know that that ended with a flood. And so that didn't end too well either. But there were eight people that God allowed to get on a boat and ultimately uh, get off that ark and start all over again. And uh, that's when we see the dispensation of government. So we had, we had right off the bat, we had innocence. Uh, excuse me, we had, uh, yeah, innocence, and then we had conscience, and then we had government. And we saw that uh, that didn't end too well either because in the end, they all ended up at the Tower of Babel when they should have been scattering throughout the world and multiplying and replenishing. Instead, they found themselves there. They're trying to build a tower to reach God even. And... Um, uh, reach heaven, and that just didn't work. So anyway, God, once again, he destroys that and messes it all up. And then we deal with the dispensation of promise or family. As we started talking about, we see that there's a, uh, uh, you know, a man by the name of Abraham, and God gives him a covenant, and as a result, he, he heads on out, and he's supposed to find the Canaan, and uh, he's going to sojourn there, and he's going to elevate and magnify the name of Christ there, and uh, you know, provide a seed that ultimately will uh, bless not only himself and his family, but the families of the world. And of course, that ends up in, the, in Egypt. And there we find them in Egypt. And as we close uh, that particular uh, portion of Scripture, we see that uh, Joseph finds himself in a, a coffin there, which is a kind of a pretty negative picture. And for 430 years, we're going to see that Israel is going to remain in Egypt now. And of course, God never intended them to remain in Egypt, but that's where they would be now, and they would be enslaved by the Egyptians. And of course, well, that dispensation ended pretty bad too. Well, God's got another plan. He's got his grace that he's involved in, and he's really trying to work it out for us. And so he's now going to change a few things here. Turn if you would to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. <clears throat> While they're in Egypt, of course... Um, Joseph's offspring and his family that uh, made their way there in Egypt become a nation. Um, and um, I mean, a, a, a force to be reckoned with, mind you. Notice what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to see here uh, an interesting thing about Israel uh, at this point. <clears throat> Notice it says in chapter 1, verse 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Let's they multiply, and it come to pass that when they're Fall without any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Well, he said, man, we've, we've got to do something. These guys have multiplied. They have grown. They are a force to be reckoned with. Man, we better deal with them now because if we don't, if the enemy shows up and they turn and fight with the enemy, then they're going to be fleeing and they're out of here. We've got to do something about it. And so they placed taskmasters over them, and they enslaved them, 
By the way, it's a, Egypt's a picture of the world, and it's interesting to note that they had taskmasters over them. Can I tell you that when we are in the world, whether we're saved or lost, when we take the step into that world and we allow ourselves to, to submit ourselves to the world, then there are taskmasters over us too. They're not kind, and they're not careful to look after us. They want to wreck and ruin and destroy us, just like the Bible says about Satan himself. who wants to just destroy anybody and anything good that God's created. God heard their cry. The people are crying out now. Man, we are being taken advantage of. We are working like dogs. We are being treated like slaves. We have nothing here. Egypt's a terrible place. Isn't it interesting how they cried out to God until they got out, out of Egypt and then they cried to go back? Isn't it funny how we whine about the circumstance and the situation we find ourselves in when we're in the world and we're in a mess, but then when we get saved, we're so excited and so happy about what God's done, and if we're not careful, it isn't long after we're longing for the world again. Isn't that something? I mean, we see tremendous pictures here of the Christian life, you know? It's amazing, isn't it? So God heard their cry, and he sent a deliverer, and that deliverer, of course, was a man by the name of Moses. And you've all seen the show, The Ten Commandments. And of course, we know then the rest of the story. Charleston Heston delivers the people. <laughs> I've been looking for that show for years. <clears throat> and you know, I thought, man, I thought we had that show. And so for the last two or three years now, we've been, man, I'm going to have to go watch. I want to watch The Ten Commandments, man. This is a good show. No, it's not really that biblically accurate, but it's a pretty good show. And I'm over here the other day, and I just kind of had to, I started looking for a video that I had, a real old video. I like some of them old westerns. I got some of them really old western videos, and I was looking for one, you know, uh, uh, branded. Branded. Dun, 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 dun. What will you do when you're branded, when you know you're a man? But anyway, you, you, you know those kind of shows, you know, the ones that you laugh about. My wife says, what are you watching that stupid stuff for? But anyway, <clears throat> I like it. So anyhow, uh, I'm looking for it, and guess what I ran across? A copy of the Ten Commandments. I've been looking all the time. It's been in front of me the whole time. The Ten Commandments. And then you know what? They got delivered. Moses, God used Moses to deliver the people of God out of Egypt. We know that they cross the Red Sea. They end up at Mount Sinai. And that's where Moses receives the law. So that brings us to our next dispensation now. The law. This dispensation extends from the exodus to the death of Jesus Christ. It's a period of about almost 1,500 years. And it's known again as the dispensation of the law. We talk a lot about the law, you know, because as you read through the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament is under law. Matter of fact, the majority of the New Testament is still under the law. You say, well, it is? Oh, absolutely. Because remember what we said, the law goes or extends from the exodus, basically, or to the giving of the law, to the death of Christ. And you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you ask yourself, well, when does the death of Christ take place in the Gospels? Well, it takes place at the end of them. The majority of the New Testament is the Gospels. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I want to read through the, uh, the New Testament, I like to start after the Gospels. I actually like to start even sometimes after Acts because it just seems to fly faster. And I feel like I've covered so much ground in those last 10 or 12 books, especially. Right before, you know, Revelation, and you get there to, you know, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, you get into Timothy, Titus, and all those. Man, it's fun. You're flying through them. You're going, man, I read four books of the Bible today. You're like, really? That's amazing. You really read a lot, don't you? <laughs> you hope they don't ask you the next day by the time you get to Revelation. But you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so anyway, I, I, you know, it's, they get delivered. And so now here they are, the law. It's kicking off. And um, man is going to basically govern himself. God's going to permit man to govern himself, if you will. Now, he organizes a system, a society with laws and regulations, and a very visible system of worship 
And actually that worship's to take place in a very specific place ultimately. And we know that that place would be Jerusalem eventually. Now this government is to be theocratic. What that actually means is that God himself is going to rule, if you will, through a representative. And that representative is Moses. And so God's establishing this society or this system in which Moses is going to be the figurehead, but God himself is ruling through Moses. It's theocratic. And that's what God's system really is all about. You'll find that even in the millennium, it's basically it. It's, a, uh, it's, it's theocratic, Christ himself ruling. In this case, he, he wants to be the one actually doing the ruling. We're going to see that when they ask for a king, what does God say? They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me, Samuel. Why? Because God was their king. And they really didn't want him to be their king. They wanted a king like the other nations. And so God said, no, they've rejected me. I am their king, but they've rejected me now. And so God was actually the one that was ruling, but he was ruling through a representative by the name of Moses at this point. Now, again, as that instrument, God would use Moses to provide the law and ultimately the leadership that it was intended and that they desperately needed. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. <clears throat> Notice it says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my commandment, my covenant, excuse me, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and unholy nation. Is there any wonder, is, really, is there any wonder why people misunderstand the difference between the church and Israel sometimes? It makes sense as you read those things, doesn't it? What's he saying, Peter? We're a peculiar people. He's talking about the church. But notice the wordage and, and how he addresses the issue of Israel. And sometimes if you're not careful, you associate those two, you, you kind of tie them together and say, well, he uses the same terminology, therefore he must be referring to the same thing. We must have obviously taken the place of Israel. Why would he call us a treasure? Well, you've got to understand that God is their husband and Christ is ours. It's a little bit different. It's a little different. And uh, the Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear very clear in the book of Romans chapter 9 and 11 that uh, there's a distinct difference between the church and, of course, uh, the Jew and Israel. Now, notice he goes on to say, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, God is speaking to Moses. Now, Moses is going to go to them, and he says, Moses, verse 7, came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So Moses is like an intermediary. He's kind of going, he's the go-between. God tells him what to tell the people. The people talk to Moses. Moses goes back, tells God. Now, I got to believe God probably knew already. But that's how it's working now. He is God's representative on earth in this case. And so here he is now communicating the message of God to the people. The people then communicate a message back, and he does that. Again, why is it that certain faiths and religions misunderstand the issue of a mediator? If you go back to the Old Testament, Moses, in a sense, is a mediator. He's acting as a mediator. You could put a robe on Moses, and he could be a priest. You have to confess to Moses. Moses goes to God on your behalf. God talks to Moses. He comes to you and deals with you. I mean, I can see where people can get mixed up on those things if you fail to rightly divide. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, verse 7, and he laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. There you go. 
So God expressed his expectations for the people. To his representative Moses. Moses relates it to the people. The people agree to God's conditions. After receiving the law now, after Moses goes back up and receives all this law, he gets all these uh, commands and statutes. In Exodus 24, verse 3, and Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. He's been up, met with God, and now he comes back. He's got the law, and he met with the people, and he says, all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Moses says, okay, you agreed to do what God said, but now I have it really written out. I've got it explained in detail. Here it is. What do you think? You've been already told me you're going to do it. You're going to do everything God said, but what are you going to do about this? Here it is. One more shot. No, we do it. We're going to do it. We are in, all in. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting, too, that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Remember we said that God made a promise or made a covenant with Abraham and it was unconditional, it meant that God was the one that was going to keep that covenant. No matter what Abraham or his descendants did, God was responsible to keep that covenant. In this case, this is a conditional covenant now. It's conditional. You say, upon what? The blessing and successes of the people and of the nation are totally and completely dependent upon the people's obedience to this law that they agree to keep. Tragically, it didn't take very long before they broke that law. It didn't take long at all, actually. Turn, if you would, over to Exodus chapter 32, verse 25. Moses is now, he's going to go back up there. He's going to get some, he's going to actually get a, a couple of tablets. Tablets in which God himself had written with his finger. So Moses comes out of the mount now, and he's got these tablets, and he finds Aaron and the people. How's he find them? Not in a good shape. Not in a good shape at all. They're in a bad, they're in bad shape. Man, I mean, even while they're up there, you got Joshua up there. He's like, hey, hey, Moses. Man, I'm telling you, we're being attacked. There's a war going on down there. Moses just kind of puts his head down and goes, it's not war. And what is it? Come on, Joshua. Down the mountain he goes with those tablets. Look what happens, Exodus 32. And when Moses saw the people were naked, I wonder, do you think that the people were running around with no clothes at all on? I mean, you really think everybody was naked? I mean, no clothes at all, no underwears, nothing. Or do you think there's a definition for naked in the Bible, maybe? You ever think about that? My wife just reminded me of something. Years ago, when we were working at a church, uh, we had what was called neighborhood Bible time. We basically took neighborhood Bible time, and, and I modified it to fit our ministry, and we called it community Bible time. So I basically plagiarized almost everything. People thought I was so smart. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell a soul. I figured if you didn't know any different, I wasn't telling you. But we used a lot of the same kind of principles, and it worked out like a, it was a, worked like a champ. I still remember those years ago, we were driving along, and we had a couple what we called evangelists. In those days, they would have at neighborhood Bible time, they'd have a couple college students, and they were called neighborhood Bible time evangelists. And those evangelists would come into the church, and they had all the ribbons, and they had all the different things that you needed for the reward ceremonies and everything. And then they would uh, put the program on, basically, and they would run the morning, and they would run the night with the teens, and they did all of that stuff. And I still remember driving down the road with him, and we were going past a, a swimming area. And one of those evangelists looked over and he said, man, look at it, Sin City. You got, you got to remember, okay, we're just driving down the road. Sin City. I went, wow, that stuck with me. We don't say that no more, do we? 
Matter of fact, we attend places like that. We go places like that. And we say it's normal for Christians. Things, things have changed. They have. The only question is, has God? The people, I'm not convinced they were absolutely naked. I believe that they fit the definition of naked in the Bible. And as a result of that, Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? That's not a fair question, Moses. That's a pretty tough question, isn't it? Okay, so we might not be doing everything you want us to do, but he said, who's on the Lord's side? Just kind of curious. Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him, and he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword on by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Ouch. Man. What in the world was so bad that they were doing? That... He was willing to watch people die. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Imagine how many people lost their husbands that day. Their fathers. Maybe their grandparents. A brother. Over what? So they got a little bit lax. They got a little bit loose. They had just entered into a covenant with God. They just said, you tell us what to do, we'll do it. We're all in. And before Moses can even get out of the mount with the details, it's all there. It's right there. Here it is, guys. Come on now. You've already agreed to some of it. I gave it to you already before I ever went up. You told me you were all in. When I came back down a little bit ago, you were all in. And now I go back up and I got even actually tablets with me this time. And I've got the finger of God and it's in writing, his own handwriting. You're already, before I can even get out of the mount with the tablets, you've already departed, and you're worshiping idols already. And you're living like the Egyptians, an abominable lifestyle. Just because I went into a mount for 40 days and 40 nights, and you thought I was lost forever, you turned back to idolatry. And God wanted to make a real impression, didn't he? Early on, here's what we learned then about the law. The law is based on the justice of God, and so it knows no mercy. It knows no mercy. 3,000 men lost their lives due to their idolatry and sinful departure that day. That's amazing, isn't it? Even as this dispensation kicked off with death, it ended with death. Over in the book of John, chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It began with death, it ended with death. Isn't that something? I don't know about you, but I'm glad I didn't live back then. I'm glad I live now. I said something to somebody, I can't remember who it was, but I said, we live in the best dispensation ever. Man, I mean, this is the best. Our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about being sent to hell or losing what we've already gotten because we never earned it to begin with. Man, are we fortunate. Are we blessed. So to begin with, there are ten commandments. And we often refer to, you talk about the commandments, the law, the first thing comes to your mind and mine are the ten commandments. And understandably so. The, the, these would be considered the moral laws that govern mankind, basically. Very general moral laws that govern mankind. All the other commands and all the other precepts kind of flow from that. They emanate from those original ten. Now, the law is basically broken down into three major categories. When you think about the law that God gave to Moses and to the people of God, it breaks down into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. So there's those three elements. The moral law, of course, are found in the Ten Commandments and, of course, throughout the law itself. 
You see the ceremonial law. These are laws that they, they, they address sacrifices and ceremonies, feasts and festivals. They, they deal with dietary and clothing restrictions, that kind of stuff. And then there's that judicial law. These laws address and deal with specific violations and the punishments that attach to them, that are attached to that. You know, you do this, you're going to get this. You do this, you get this. You do that, you get this. Um, judicial. So those are the basic breakdowns of the law. Moses goes into the mount, he comes back with the law, and when he comes back with the law, he basically has this. Now again, there's nothing in the law that says, oh, by the way, this is immoral. Oh, by the way, this is ceremonial. Oh, by the way, this is judicial. It doesn't work that way. Basically, this is traditionally how the Jewish people, as well as even you and I today, understand and break the law down so that it's practical in how it's applied. These laws are found in the first five books of the Bible. You and I would call them the Pentateuch. And of course, we know the author of those five books, or at least the writer, was Moses. And it was given to him by God. The Jew will call this the Torah. And he sees these books and he looks at these laws and these commands and he says, oh wait, this is the Torah. And there are 613 different commandments that are to be followed. Some have expanded that. Some have tried to even lower it. But as a general rule, traditionally, 613 is where they land. I don't know about you, but can you imagine carrying a list of 613 do's and don'ts around? Do you understand? In the, I want you to keep that in mind for a minute. 613 do's and don'ts. Every day you're walking around, you're thinking, man, should I do this or should I not do this? Let me dig into that little list. Let me pull it out. And then you're rolling it up on your scroll. And you finally find it. Oh, can't do that. Put it all away. Whew. Can I do this? Oh, man. Yeah, I can do that. He said, that's stupid. That's what the law does. Do you know what's sad? Watch this now. People. People who want to focus on grace all the time. You know what they want to do? They want you to show them the law. And where they can't do this, they can't do that, show it to me. Because if you can't show it to me in black and white, then I can do it. You know what God did when he stopped the law, when he got rid of the law? He said, there's principles you live by. See, I don't need that 613 list of do's and don'ts anymore. I've got the New Testament that outlines principles that guide and dictate and determine what is right and wrong in my life because now I'm, I'm motivated by a higher authority than just a stinking written law. I've got the law of Christ. I've got Christ himself, the word of God living in me, the living word. I don't know about you, but 613 do's and don'ts kind of strap you pretty good. But can I tell you, when you're told to love, that means you can't hate, no matter what, in a sense. You can hate sin, but you can't hate people to hate people. That doesn't mean you can't point out sin and wrongdoing, but you can't hate people. You can't hate, like... Let me look up. Can I hate my brother because he said this or did this to me? There's no reason to. you got a principle to live by. You can't do it. you got to, wait, he, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. What do I do about my enemies? Oh, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I don't need 613 laws, man. Those principles alone, man, they blow it out of the water. If I'm truly trying to be obedient to the law, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. All I'm saying is, is that we don't need 613 laws. We don't need everything spelled out for us when we have the principles by which to live by. And too many times Christians that want to try to stray away from God and his word are always looking for an out, and what they're looking for is a law. Show me the law, and I will obey it. Wait, the very law's the thing you don't want. 
nor do I. But you keep forcing me to try to bring the law back up to prove to you that what you're doing or going or where you're, what you're saying is wrong. That makes no sense. If we're going to live by the law, then let's live by the law. If we're going to live by grace, then let's live by grace. But can I tell you, the standard of grace is much higher than the law. Much higher. Do you know what they did under law? We are to do that and another step under grace. He says, you don't just go the mile that you're required to by the Roman soldier if he tells you to carry his luggage. Got to go a mile. He told me I had to go. That's what the law says. There's your mile. He says, you go too. Oh, excuse me, sir. You asked for a mile? You still going ahead? I'll carry it. You don't have to by law. I know. But I get to by grace. Isn't that amazing? And that's the principle of the New Testament. It's not, I have to tithe. I get to tithe and do more. Oh, I have to be pure? Yeah, and holy. Separated? No problem. Other mile. Instead of doing the bare minimum under grace, we get to go the extra mile. We get to, because God gives us the grace to go the extra mile. He's the one doing it in and through us now. We don't have to do it in our own strength. We do it in his strength. That's the blessing of grace versus the law. So Moses, he was succeeded by Joshua. And after the death of Joshua, there's no one leader anymore. We know that judges come on the scenes. And for 450 years, these judges ruled in Israel. Now, it came, there came a point now in the history or in the past that Israel was tired of being ruled by these judges, so they asked for a king. They demanded a king, the Bible says. And they did get one. Remember, we already mentioned it, but they said, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king like them. And he said, well, but, 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 but God's your king. I know, but we want a king... You know what that says? He was never their king. I mean, would you really discard God as your king when you, for a Saul? Of course not. And remember, God even says to, 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 to Samuel, make sure you tell him what kind of king they're going to get. Because old Saul, Samuel, you let him know, Saul's going to be a ripoff. Okay, I'll tell him, Lord. We want a king. Okay. I'll give you what you asked for. So many times I think in America we're getting what we've asked for. And I know as the church we say, well, I didn't ask for it. Uh, well, we may not have consciously said, give me this, but we didn't do anything to make sure it didn't happen either in many cases. At the, 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 the people, they get this king, and Saul's the first king. He's 40 years into this. He, 40 years as a king. Then you have David, 40 years as a king. You've got Solomon, 40 years as a king. And then at the death of Solomon in B.C. 975, 975 years before basically Christ shows up, the kingdom's divided. And we know that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he has two tribes. Those tribes are referred to as Judah in the Bible. And the southern tribes are often referred to as southern tribes as well. We talk about them that way. Then you also have Jeroboam, who took the ten tribes. They're called Israel, the northern kingdom. Now that northern kingdom under Rehoboam, 254 years after the split, goes into Assyrian captivity. And so now here they are in 721 B.C. in Assyrian captivity. Judah is still together. Judah's still functioning and operating. And they would operate and function for another 115 years or at least until 606 BC. So you have this split that takes place, 975 before Christ. And you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so you've got the northern kingdom under Jeroboam goes along and all of a sudden in 721 BC Assyria takes them captive. Gone. Judah's still moving on, strong. 115 years later, in 606 B.C., Babylon puts them in captivity. 
So they're in captivity, and the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah that that would be a 70-year captivity. 606 minus 70 puts us at 536 B.C. And that's exactly when they were able to go back to Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem, all of Israel, and all the Jews didn't go back, but a group did go back, and that's when we see them making their way back to Jerusalem. The temple itself was destroyed in 586. So you have in 606, I know you guys are losing it probably, right, all these numbers, but in 606, you have Babylonian captivity. Remember, you got 70 years of captivity. But in 586, 20 years after they went into captivity, the temple in Jerusalem was wrecked and ruined, totally destroyed. And the reason I bring that up is this, and we're going to note it here. There came a point when they got back to Jerusalem that they were going to rebuild the temple. Fifty years ago, it had been destroyed. And the people now have mixed emotions about this rebuild. Look in Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Again, upon returning to Jerusalem, following the captivity, this new temple is going to be dedicated. The first temple is said to have been destroyed, as we mentioned, in 586. That would mean that 50 years or so, right around 50 years has passed, and now a new temple is being built. Watch Ezra 3.12. This was always a little perplexing, and it is perplexing if you think it's 70 years from the time that the temple was destroyed to the time that it was actually rededicated. But it was 50 years. Now notice what happens here. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men. Can you imagine we stop calling, you, calling people, hey, he's an older gentleman. No, he's an ancient gentleman. He's ancient. What do you think? How old do you think would ancient be? Some of the young people go, the preacher's ancient. And, and you know what? Compared to you, I am ancient. Absolutely. But, but I think these guys are pretty old here. These, these folks are pretty old, the ancient ones. Watch what it says here. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house. It says they saw that first house. I mean, this would be 50 years earlier they saw this house now. It wasn't 70 years, so they may not have been, you know, 90 or something like that. But 50 years earlier, they remember this temple that was destroyed. They remembered it from 50 or 60 years, maybe. Maybe 70 even, I don't know, depending on how ancient they were. And the Bible goes on to say, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud voice, and the noise was heard afar off. I believe that two things are going on. One, I think they're extremely pleased and happy that there's a new temple being dedicated. I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, they are thrilled. I do believe, however, based on the distinct size difference and the, 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 the context of the temple itself and, and how it would be utilized now here to that day versus how it was being used back then, I think the ancient men looked and there was a part of them that was almost saddened to think about how different the temple was from the first one. Young people, let me tell you something. When older people walk through a church, they're so thrilled to see a soul saved. But some of the ancients remember when 10 and 20 and 30 were being saved. And sometimes you'll talk to them, you'll think, why don't you just get with the program? Why do you always got to talk about the old days? Because the old days were like your days now. It's not that they're disrespecting young people. It's not that they're trying to put, you know, raspberries on all the good stuff that's going on because we're pleased with what God's doing. There are some older folks. There's some ancient ones in here. And they remember when the church 
I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about churches even in our area were different. Where buses, it wasn't uncommon to run 60 and 80 all the time. When churches would grow from zero to 500 in a matter of five or seven years. They remember those days. And they look at the church today and they watch the attitude toward Christ and toward the work of God and the lack, and I'm going to say it, lack of commitment in context to what it used to be. And they go, wow. We are so thrilled with those that are plugged in, but we remember when there were so many others that were. And I'm not talking about specific people. I'm talking about, in general, the Christian faith. I'll tell you, the Christian faith is totally different today than it was 40 years ago. It's totally different in America. And some of the older folks see that, and it bothers them. But they're pleased, and they're just as happy as punch when they see you lifting the banner up. Keep raising the banner. They need that. You'll encourage them. But if you lower the banner, it'll break their hearts. They need you. They need you today. So I think these old ancient folk, man, they were excited, but on the other hand, they remember what it used to be too. So anyway, the times of the Gentiles had begun, and now Israel's going to be going through a very difficult time. And so because of time, we're going to close too, but a couple of simple thoughts. Well, you know what? I'm going to save these thoughts because we're going to talk a little bit about the law was never intended to save. The law was fulfilled in Christ. Eh, Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we won't. I know you know all that stuff. This is all just a reminder. We've heard it, haven't we? But remember, we need to be able to teach it, huh? We need to be able to teach it. I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm excited for our young people going to camp this year. Man, we need a revival of the old things. I mean, just a fire that's lit in the hearts of these young men and ladies. You know, we're watching a generation choose materialism over the master. I mean, it's just a reality. And I'm I'm glad, I am so glad we've got some young people that have made up their mind. They're going to be in church. They're going to serve the Lord. Let me tell you, And there's some tough decisions coming their way. As we often said, there's a storm coming. The devil's going to be fighting you tooth and nail. And try to get your eyes off of him and on to this down here. We've talked about it. Here or here? Which plane will you keep your eyes on? Horizontal or vertical? We've got to keep it on him. And for us as older people, graduated, living life with families. Maybe we need to make some decisions, not for ourselves, but for them, to encourage them to keep on going. See, the Christian life, as you well know, isn't about me, it's not about you, it's about others. We got some good young people here. Let's not be the reason they get discouraged. Let's stay faithful, stay consistent, stay plugged in. Show them that it's worth living for Jesus. And they'll make those same choices when they see how good it is and how good he is. Father, we thank you so much for all you do for us. Thank you for a people here at church, the Community Baptist Temple, that, Father, love souls. They love people. They have a desire to reach out. Lord, they're on bus routes. They're working in Sunday schools. They're singing in choirs. They're, Father, trying to help people along the way and just encourage people in the things of Christ trying to pattern our marriages after you and the church. We're trying to do the right things. and Lord, those are things we got to do. It's worthwhile. It's definitely in our best interest, but it's also in the best interest of others. Be glorified in our hearts, our lives. Lord, help us to honor you. Lord, be with our young people. I'm burdened for them. They face so many obstacles and so many challenges today, and yet... I know every generation has had those obstacles and challenges, but Lord, I just really have a burden for them now. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just bless over these next months and that they would just have a wonderful summer. And yet, Lord, they would also have a wonderful time meeting you, fellowshipping with you. I pray that during the services in these next few weeks that their hearts would burn 
as the Holy Spirit convicts, as the Holy Spirit works and moves. I pray you'd call our young men to the, God, to the ministry. Lord, we need men that will give their life to full-time service. I pray, Lord, you'll do that. Lord, I, I just know, Father, that well, we need more churches. We need more men of God that will stand up and proclaim the truth. Lord, whether or not they're in the, quote, ministry full-time, they're still in the ministry full-time. I think about men in this church and how they have been so faithful to proclaim the truth. I know, Lord, you don't have to be a pastor to be a full-time servant. So, Lord, I thank you for these that are here that have made up their mind to do just that. Father, for the faithfulness of your people, may we continue to honor you with our life and lips. We'll thank you. We'll praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We'll take just a moment.